Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, listeners. Sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favour to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits, and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. Totally today, golf fan Gareth Bale picks up club as Spurs roar for four. Meanwhile, at the bottom, Brighton teed off after amazing foul up by Amazon. We ran up all the action, top and bottom. Seagulls dropping, Man City not stopping. Have a look ahead to the midweek fixtures. Celebrate a Pardew anniversary and ponder Bruro. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Monday the 1st of March is the calendar on the wall, listener, and you're joining us here on The Totally Show with a very special lineup for you. It's Sunday evening as we record this. I'm looking at Daniel Story of the Eye and Football 365. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Also with us, Dominic Fifield and Charlie Eccleshare of The Athletic. Evening, James. Hi, James. It's Sunday evening. As I say, sad news coming through late on Sunday about uh, Glenn Rodo, one of, one of football's Good guys, who Dom, I think you've had some you had some dealings with in you know along the way of his football career. Yeah, yeah, came across him a, a few times. Um, the most recently, way back in two thousand and three, when things were really unraveling at when he was manager of, of West Ham United. Uh, his his team were beaten at, at Leeds United on a um, at Ellen Road, and we he he dealt with a quite a poisonous situation in a very dignified way um it was a very difficult time for him and indeed i think he fell ill very shortly after that um but talking to people who had a lot of dealings with him he 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 was a a lovely lovely bloke you know um really well respected um he is a newcastle united manager who actually won a trophy that we should probably acknowledge in that in as much as they won the intertoto cup when he was in charge there a good player, solid player at QPR, obviously uh, captained, I think, in the in the first FA Cup final against Spurs. When would that be? In 81, was it? Something like that. Um, and then missed the replay because he was suspended for it. But but uh, there's a very good interview actually out on, I think it was on, the, also on Twitter this afternoon, that he conducted with Brian Moore ahead of that replay. And he, again, in, he dealt with the what must have been crushing disappointment that he was going to miss out on the on the the chance to win that FA Cup and lift it, um, and he dealt with it in a in a typically dignified way. Mm. It was a, a a broad career that he had, full of full of highs and and obviously some really difficult times as well. Daniel, you were pointing out that he was originally going to accompany Paul Gascoigne out to Italy. Yeah, they were they were very good friends. Um, 
and until so Gascoigne had his injury which delayed him going out to Italy and Rhoda stuck by him through that and was still planning to move out with him effectively be a minder for him I don't, I don't know whether he'd have been paid or not he might have looked to get some coaching work because uh, he was a bit older than quite a lot older than Gaza um, but yes after after the second injury Gaza was saying goodbye in Newcastle and got hit in a bar not his fault and his knee buckled and he did the same injury again and Rhoda Tanner said look I can't rely on you I can't do this I can't just move to help you and it didn't happen which you know I think even what you mentioned it before the show James but even more than the if he joined Manchester United question I think that's probably the bigger if actually because I don't think joining Man United would have changed much I think he'd have had Rhoda out there instead of some of the characters and I don't mean you James who were um kind of more friendly with him out there let's say Jimmy Five Bellies etc then things might have been different well, uh, he leaves us at the age of just 65, which is really very sad for, for one of, uh, clearly one of the good guys. So the weekend, uh, it is Sunday night. Daniel's got winners and losers to write after this. Is that right, Daniel? I've actually almost done. Have you? Because yes. I was suggest mm. I was going to suggest that we give you a bit of a hand. No, no, like feel free. Yeah. Throwing in one or two. Who's got Lee Mason on their bingo cards? <laughs> <laughs> I don't talk about refereeing decisions. Do you not in Winners and Losers? No. Okay. No, because I'll be here all day. You, you've probably got Spurs in there, surely. I had Gareth Bale in there, uh, which Charlie will be more than happy to tell us about. We, I think it was probably... Well, Charlie was on with me and you, James, when we were saying, is this broken? You know, have we lost the player he was? And, and I don't think he is the player that he was, but he he might still be quite useful um, against teams that like to sit back and then suddenly find themselves a goal a minute down and have to push forward. He's pretty much perfect for Bale, but yes, he's in there. All right. The, the question of how much the Spurs' performance on Sunday is down to the opponents and how much it's down to their new direction uh, is something we'll be exploring very, very shortly. Villa, keeping pace with them, uh, they had their uh, no-jack-required uh, victory away at Leeds. Liverpool won an actual football match, which is probably worth a mention in your column who would you have in your losers charlie have you got any nominations people who like watching united in big games and mm. there being goals that was uh i mean i i feel i've spent a large proportion of the last few months watching united drawing nil nil against big sides um so that they was have, a bit of a disappointment yeah. So October the 4th, they had the 6-1 against Spurs, just in case you haven't seen this stat somewhere else already. Since then, six games against big six sides, five nil-nils and that one nil defeat to Arsenal. Why, why is that? It feels like a question of balance. I mean, and maybe just a bit of not quite believing that they're at that level yet to go and really win these games. Um, you know, they... they have looked pretty solid in them but they've they've had a slight issue with with quite a few of them in that a draw hasn't really been that bad a result I mean maybe Arsenal away was one where they really you know that was one before where you're thinking they're their favourites though Arsenal were on a decent run so it's kind of fallen into this pattern where it gets to about an hour and it, it happened a bit today today was more in, interesting where it's kind of like mm, draw's not terrible do we really back ourselves uh, to go and win this and maybe if they did you know, once they do get over the line and one of them, it will then give them the confidence to do that more and more. But they they just seem a little bit wary of leaving themselves exposed uh, and losing a game like today. The other slight issue they've got, I think, is that, that 
it's understandable that that Bruno Fernandes kind of runs everything. But I think against those bigger opponents or opponents that the managers see Bruno as such an obvious threat, I think there is a slight over-reliance on him. And I think that's probably slightly down to Solskjaer, but also probably down to, down to other players not quite stepping up. Um, he's only created, I think, six chances in five games against, in his last five games against those big six teams. Um, kind of, obviously, just an average of just over one a game, which is is so much lower than elsewhere. And he just looked a bit, again, a bit a bit quiet today. I don't know why Solskjaer started him on Thursday night. I have to say, in a game that they were already a tie that they're already miles ahead in. I don't think that helped. But um, yeah, I agree with Charlie. I think it isn't a bad result. Therefore, it's very hard to draw long-lasting conclusions. But when you look at that as a whole, there's clearly. You know, they've taken five points from seven games against those big six teams this season, which just isn't enough. Mm. Well, they have moved one point clear of Leicester in the race for second place behind Mighty Man City. A quick run through the scores and what they mean with about 12 games to go. Leaders, Man City, got a bit of a scare from West Ham, but they ended up 2-1 winners at the Etihad and extended their lead to 12 points because the next five teams... In the league, all drop points. Man United and Chelsea, of course, goalless. Leicester losing 3-1 at home to Arsenal earlier on Sunday. West Ham beaten at the Etihad, stay fourth. Chelsea now a point behind them, with Liverpool sixth, a point behind them after a 2-0 win at Bramall Lane. Everton play Monday, but they have Spurs and Villa threatening them after their wins over Burnley and Leeds. Down the bottom, Fulham's goalless draw at Palace and Newcastle's 1-1 with Wolves mean those two teams remain three points apart on either side of the dotted line. Brighton, though, slip a point closer to the drop after their at-times bizarre 1-0 loss at West Brom. The baggies, for those still paying attention, are nine points from safety with, I make it 12 games to go, but something in that neighbourhood anyway. All right, then. Let's begin with everybody below Man City but above the people battling at the bottom. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Here's Sean Kelly saying, where does the pod draw the line at teams who could make Europe? Dom, where's your line in the sand? <laughs> uh, let me hastily pick up the, the Premier League table to get some idea. <laughs> right. um, I would say... Well, look, Villa have got a game in hand um, on those above them if this table is has indeed updated. Um, I, I can't see Arsenal... Should we, should we make it a cha- Champions League question to simplify it? Oh, Champions League, yeah. That, that, yeah. I'd, I'd say Champions League down to Liverpool. OK. Um, Everton have got a chance and I just think they're just slightly too inconsistent and, and their home form has been indifferent as well. Um but I think I think realistically speaking, it's it's four of that top six. Right. West Ham beaten on Saturday at the Etihad, but the performance didn't undermine the notion that they could finish top four. I thought they were excellent in defeat. To be honest, I know it's yeah, City were obviously better and they found a way of winning the game. Um, but that's what City are doing to everybody at the moment. Um, I thought I thought West Ham gave a, a really good account of themselves. And and the reality is, you know, that they went into the, the weekend in the top four. They they've ended it in the top four, and you know, after visiting Manchester City, so they're not going to have any tougher games in their in their run in. I, I just think David Moyes has done an absolutely incredible job there, um, and I ha- I hope that 
you know, Mikhail Antonio's hamstrings um, survive the the weeks ahead because I think he's such a key he's such a key element to their their team. They haven't got a backup in, for him really, and I think that's I mean that exposed them in the FA Cup um, the, the lack of depth in that striker role. So they need Antonio to be fit, but there's so much going right there that they've they've done tremendously well. Mm, Twenty wins in a row. In all competitions for Man City, the Hammers coming close to ending this run. Big chance at the end, as set up by Jesse Lingard. They did restrict City to zero shots in the first half an hour before Amandias put them ahead. Uh, And they also caused City to concede a goal for the first time since the 15th of December. Uh, This was a City side with Aguero and Kevin De Bruyne, but who, you know, for giggles, beat them with the centre-backs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a re- it was it was Aguero and De Bruyne starting for the first time together since February 2020 as well, which is remarkable, really. Um, and yeah, they did. I mean, they didn't really look any better for Aguero's inclusion. It should be said. I, I actually think they they're almost better playing this kind of roaming, marauding band of attacking midfielders that keep falling into each other's pockets and and causing danger like that. Um, I like I like that Sterling is that furthest player forward in the middle. I think that works the best. But um, yeah, it's a, a few decent options on the bench. It should be said the the bench was just I mean it was outrageous. <laughs> and it was three hundred million worth of talent plus Foden, wasn't it? Was it really? Yeah, ludicrous. Yeah. Sterling, Jesus, Laporte, Rodri, Silva, Mendy, Cancelo, and, and as you say, Foden at the end. Um, it's up there with the all-time great benches. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'd back that seven to beat two or three different Premier League teams' elevens at the moment. So yes, it's good. Wow. <laughs> I mean, West Ham had. I know. XG on individual games is seen as a bit gauche by uh, kind of experts on these matters, but they did have a, a much better XG than than City, um, which kind of reflects that they um, they had the better chances and and were on top for much of the game. Mm. Alrighty, uh, beyond West Ham, uh, Spurs and Villa, could they be the late twist in the Champions League race? How damaging a weekend do you think this was equally for Leicester? Charlie, do you want to tell us about Spurs actually? Because d- Daniel was mentioning at the top about how we thought that was it. But here comes Gareth Bale to the rescue. Daniel Maslia writing in, uh, could could Gareth Bale save Mourinho? And Matt Honeyman wants to know, how great would Spurs be with Sun, Kane, Bale and Ali in the side? That's a question for you. Uh, equally, um, Roy Keane says Spurs are no good and Jamie says they, they are. <laughs> isn't good enough. But I'll tell you what, Reguilon is as good a left-back as there is in the country, yeah. so I think you've got that one wrong. I think he's a, he's a class player. That's I mean, why Real Madrid let him go. Not got any That's confidence. Why, Madrid, why, why do you think Real Madrid let what, him so go? You're saying he's not, does that matter? Oh, because Real Madrid let him go. That doesn't make him a good player. Yeah, but how much did they let him go for? Country, not a good player, how much did they let him go for? It's not as if they paid 60, Sorry? 70 million. They might be able to buy him back, actually. Where do you stand, Charlie? Yeah, I did have to say, I did really enjoy that, as I think everyone did. Um... Yeah, it's a difficult one because I think Spurs, they're a slightly strange side. Because they had those wins against City and Arsenal and United in the first half of the season, they got characterised as being good against the good teams but not so good against the bad teams. And I think there was some truth in that because they they um, seem to benefit when teams attack them. But actually, certainly this calendar year, the teams they've beaten have been the weaker ones and they've lost Brighton aside to the better ones, you think Liverpool, Chelsea, 
uh, West Ham have all beaten them. So I think actually today did suit them quite well. You know, it sounds obvious, but playing against a not such a good side and also one that was surprisingly, I thought, more open um, than I was expecting. I thought, you know, if they'd done their homework, and I'm sure they had, they'd known that, you know, when Spurs are kind of vulnerable is when they get frustrated against that low block defence. But they scored early and then it was uh, it was good fun. I mean, yeah, Bale, again, I, I guess... It's probably a cop out, but we need a bit more uh, data, I guess. Like he definitely looks like he's in the best form he's been by a distance since he joined, and he clearly is getting towards full fitness. Um, and that's really been the big, the big issue, I think, that he hasn't really been there yet this season. Um, he hasn't fully trusted his body. I mean, Mourinho spoke afterwards about um, you know the fact that. He can't necessarily play all the games. I think he's going to have to pick and choose a little bit. And it'll be interesting because we may see, Mourinho slightly hinted at this, them going more for the Europa League uh, than the Premier League if it becomes apparent that the top four is completely out of reach, which I don't think it is quite yet. I think they are still in that mix. Um, There are enough teams dropping points. Yeah, there's six points behind, but with a game in hand. Yeah, exactly, which feels you know very much attainable um i really liked uh i'll just dig this quote out this is a classic Mourinho after the game he he was talking about bail and he said it would be very nice for me now to say that i handled the situation amazingly well i'm not that kind of guy which uh <laughs> it, it, yeah it's just so you know i'm I'm not gonna go on about how great i am that's just, that's just not what i do that's for others to do but I that so, was a classy touch <laughs> so spurs supporters out there who are pinching themselves at, at scoring 14 goals in the last four matches, at seeing this kind of fabulous foursome sweeping up field of Kane, Son, Bale and Lucas Moura with Deli Alley waiting to come on. It is against lesser opposition, whether it's Burnley on Sunday or Wolfsburger in the Europa League or whatever. But it's the key thing here, the fact that the manager's actually putting those players out there, not just in the Europa League, but also now in the Premier League as well. So, am I crazy to be thinking that there is actually a change? We could see a, a kind of Indian summer in Spurs this season. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, in, in, in even some of the games like Brighton, where they were, I mean, Kane was out, but they were dismal and offered nothing. But they did actually play a fairly attacking lineup. There had there has been a bit of a change. I think I think Mourinho recognised that they weren't really uh, creating enough, and and Sissoko's gone out of the team. And whereas before he was playing, kind of sat in front of the defence with Hoybier, they've sacrificed him for another attacker, and Ndombele, uh is playing in a midfield too. So, yeah, I mean, the, the shackles have have come off a bit. It feels like Mourinho's acknowledged that, that they simply weren't creating enough. And it is good, really good to see, really encouraging that Bale's come back and inform and Deli Ali has. And, you know, if they can get those two back to anything like their best, then that is that that really could make a difference. It It is just whether, you know, they'll have enough to do both the Europa League run and make up what is still quite a lot of ground. Um, but it's certainly a lot more encouraging than it was a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. And as someone with an informed perspective, who was right? Roy Keane... Or, or, or Jamie Redknapp. No, seriously. I I thought Keane was a bit harsh, um, a bit over the top. So boring answer, but probably somewhere in the middle. Um, and and saying you know anyone could be an international. I mean, may, maybe you know there's. It's not as hard as it was, but well, um, bearing in yeah. mind he's used to the Ireland setup, so you can understand his perspective. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, 4-0 this anyway for Spurs, which given that they actually won it 5-0 last season represents a bit of a step backwards. If it does go down to the wire, 
for them and the Champions League. It could be a really interesting final day in store because they're going to be visiting Leicester in round 38 of this Premier League season. Uh, a Leicester team who could well be within within you know range after a really damaging uh, afternoon or a week in fact they went out of the Europa League lost at home to Arsenal and lost a couple more key players as well. Yeah, they are in 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 big trouble for injuries and and it should be said this is what happened last season really you know indeed he missed games January February and then I think Madison missed the last seven and Ricardo Pereira missed the last nine and. Um, Peter Kagalosiunk, who missed the last three, and and that this kind of created this sort of vortex where every week it felt like they were losing one more player, just kind of chipping one away, and they were left with not enough. And it, it sort of feels like the same's happening now because you know James Justin's been ruled out for the season. James Madison has a hip problem. It looks like Harvey Barnes. I mean, Brendan Rodgers said six week, at least six weeks, but he also said he's going to have surgery. So we, you'd have to doubt if he's going to come back before the end of the season and Johnny Evans limped off and, and Wesley Fofana's already injured so and, and Jamie Vardy doesn't look all that either well no he, he didn't have a shot today which is only the second time this season he's not had a shot in a Premier League game and yeah it just they don't have enough Leicester they only bought three players last summer and effectively two of them were replacements you know Castagna for for Ben Chilwell and Kengizunda for for Damara Gray who wasn't wanted and was eventually sold in January so they just they just don't have enough depth um, and it would be a real shame, you know, you say they play Spurs on the last day. Last season, it was them against Manchester United as a shootout for who gets that last place or, or who who is confirmed staying in the top four. And yeah, it's kind of exactly the same again for for Leicester potentially. But the, the run-in actually, the last three fixtures for the Foxes are Man United again and then Chelsea and then they finish off with Tottenham. So it's, it's a tough run-in. The only team that's actually been in the top four all the way through this season is the... BT Sport commentators were revealing. Uh, beaten on this day by an Arsenal side who started the game in, in kind of classic fashion. Arteta had made massive changes, resting Saka and Aubameyang after their Europa League uh, clash with Benfica. And then they kind of went behind by all running away when, when uh, Tillemans <laughs> advanced with the ball. Uh, it, at that point, it didn't look good for the Gunners. But the reports I read suggest that the man behind the comeback was William? Can this be? <laughs> I have to say, yeah, having uh, a couple of weeks ago been quite critical of William, as I think most have been, he was he was a lot better. This was almost certainly his best performance for Arsenal. I mean, weird thing about William, he's got the most Premier League assists for Arsenal uh, this season, which seems kind of unbelievable with five. Also, the, I mean, you say as well about Arsenal, when Arsenal went behind, I think prior to today, they captured four points from losing positions all season, all of which came against Southampton in two games. And I think Leicester had only dropped three from winning one. So it really, this really, this wasn't a comeback that looked at all on, especially with those changes and the short turnaround from Thursday night. It was obviously a noon kickoff. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a strange one. And obviously the injuries for Leicester, for Leicester helped. But I mean, Willian, he, Arteta clearly believes that, you know, some of that Chelsea, you know, the player who impressed at Chelsea is still there. We just haven't seen it. I mean, Dom, you you saw him last season. Did he look as if he was... Did, did you think he would be this bad? Uh, no. Um, although that that that, that said, um, I was staggered to, to hear that Chelsea would have liked to have kept him. 
mm. um, albeit not on the terms, the length of terms that he was seeking. Um, I, look, I, I, maybe I've been a bit harsh there. Willian is a, you know what you're going to get with Willian, generally speaking. He's he's a lot of scuttling energy, um, yeah, and assists, um, quite a canny player at his best. And he was, at times, excellent at Chelsea. Just don't let him take a corner. That seems to be the rule. Um <laughs> But it's weird. I mean, to think that Chelsea might have, you know, if Frank Lampard or whoever was pushing that at the time to keep him, I don't see how he would have got anywhere near mm. that Chelsea first team, given the number of options they had in, in those positions. I mean, not not. I'm not saying that Chelsea are the finished article and, and, and great by any means, but they've just got so many attacking options. They've probably got one too many as it is. Um, but I didn't think he'd, I didn't think it would be quite this bad at Arsenal. Maybe we underestimate even for experienced players sometimes, an adaptation to new surroundings. And he had been fairly settled at Chelsea for quite a long time. I mean, he'd been there for, what, nine years or something daft. So it's maybe we do need to take that into account. It wasn't nine years, it was less than that, I think. Actually, it was seven, seven I think. Yeah, yeah. Daniel, you've, you've spent a good proportion, I think, of, of your appearances on this show inveigling against a Williams inclusion <laughs> in the Arsenal team. Yeah, I mean, I, and against um, the, the policy of signing... Kia Chirabchi and clients and you should also say that Cedric Suarez was, was brilliant today as was David Luiz so that's the three um, clients um, my, my problem with the Williams signing was was A the PR of it because they they announced the deal and then pleaded poverty when mm. they were initially made the, the furlough which they then they did they then went back on and the unveiling was at Kia's house I think wasn't it yes the, uh, so, <laughs> which yeah. wasn't the best optics was it was that because of lockdown or, or? It was, yeah. But even so, I think they, you know, it, it didn't look great. <laughs> and the length of the deal, I still think, is you know, even if he'd been Arsenal's fourth or fifth best player this season, rather than third or fourth worst, um, I, I still think the length of the deal would have been insane, frankly, for 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 a club of Arsenal's financial capability at the moment. Though they do have to think about things; they can't just make rash decisions. So, yeah, I kind of stick by that. But yeah, he was he was excellent against Leicester. Okay, it was their first away league win against the side in the top three since January 2015, that game against Man City that always gets brought up. Arsenal, unlike Leicester, are still in the Europa League. Having got past Benfica, they have drawn Olympiacos. Yeah. I mean, that just on that, you, I mean, Leicester, that could be a real blessing for them because you think for them with their injuries trying to juggle Europa League and they're still in the FA Cup and going for that top four, that you really would fear for the kind of ability to put a good side out uh, in the Premier League. Mm. Also in that mix, uh, we mentioned Liverpool and Aston Villa. A Villa who are level with Spurs, uh, so six points off top four with that game in hand. What did you make of their performance away at Leeds? I think anybody who goes to Leeds at the moment and uh, adapts to that pitch is uh, and, and wins is worthy of huge, huge praise because that is it's scandalously bad. It's I mean it's absolutely appalling and and I know both teams have to play on it, but Leeds are increasingly used to playing on it now, and I know it's also mm. a temporary situation that they will uh, you know be alleviated in the summer and there'll there'll be a new there'll be some new turf down there. But my word, it's like watching it's Bambi on ice, isn't it? Everything I mean, you just see the first five minutes of the game, the visitors are. Skating all over the place, slipping, slipping over. I think Watkins even fell over as he's setting up Villa's goal um, <laughs> to, to win the win the game. It's it was it's, it's a disgrace, um, really. But you know, brilliant, brilliant result for Villa. 
It reminds me, do you remember, do you remember Chelsea had that like sand pit of a pitch in about 2003? I'm not sure there's been a worse Premier League pitch since then before Leeds have come along and taken that mantle this year. Game 39. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, they, they, they did also, you mentioned it in the, in the build-up, James, but they won without Jack Grealish, which right. um, before this... I mean, it's a run stretching back quite a long way because they've been in the championship for a fair while, but they'd taken one point from the last 16 matches that Grealish hadn't started, which is um, were ludicrous, really. And in that time, he's kind of grown as this dominant creative force, which makes them logically less and less likely to win without him because he does so much. So, yeah, I mean, all power to them for managing to find a way without probably the most dominant creative force of any team in the Premier League, I'd guess, this season. What what was the way that they found? Was was it bringing El Ghazi to play alongside Ollie Watkins, or, or how did how did it all work? Or was it just being very very attentive to kind of shutting Leeds down? Yeah, I think I think it was that. I mean, they kind of caught Leeds pretty early, which helps, um, and then obviously left Leeds sort of chasing the game, and they could kind of dig in. I like El Ghazi. He seems like one of those players that very easily gets forgotten, even by Villa supporters, maybe or some Villa supporters, but. His record when he comes in and he gets sort of parachuted in and out of the team and has to sit on the bench for three or four games, that's not easy to do as a footballer. And we, we kind of underestimate how hard it is, I think, to just come in and hit the ground running. And he seems to do that really well, like a perfect Premier League squad player. So, yeah, I think they just did the, the kind of the basics well and, and probably caught Leeds on an off day, which, which helps. Mm-hmm. Very well taken goal, that from El Ghazi as well. At Liverpool, late Sunday, a 2-0 victors away at Bramall Lane, ending a four-game losing run. wasn't easy, though. No, but they, they were the dominant team. I mean, Ramsdale's that's probably his best performance for, for Sheffield United, certainly in this stint at the club. Um, and uh, he, he was almost single-handedly keeping Liverpool at, at bay throughout that first half. I thought Curtis Jones for Liverpool was superb. Really, really good. Loads of energy and quality on the ball. Uh, nice finish to, to open the scoring. And... Yeah, and then Sheffield United's same old problems crop up. I mean, Ollie McBurney's got a glorious chance to equalise and they've just got no bite in front of goal. And, and you could probably take that for most of the teams in the bottom half of the table. That's been the biggest problem this season for all of them. And they, they, there was no way back in it, into it for them. Um, and Liverpool, you know, they could have won far more comfortably than they did. But they're back on track. And, and if they beat Chelsea in midweek, they're back in the top four. Mm. Everton play on Monday night. They're taking on Saints, who've picked up just one point from their previous eight league matches. Also coming up this midweek, Man City are up against Wolves on Tuesday. A fixture that Wolves won last year, with the Dama Traore running rampant. Uh, Then you've got Burnley-Leicester. Sheffield United will be hosting Aston Villa. Crystal Palace-Dom take on Man United. And then on Thursday, it's Fulham Spurs, West Brom Everton and Liverpool again, this time against Chelsea. Well, that's half of the drama from the weekend. But of course, downstairs in the bottom half, there's all sorts of big results, big performances, big numbers to have a ruminate over. We'll be getting on to that very shortly, as well as asking that big question about the Euros. Oh, mate, keep going. We're almost there. Oh, the legs have gone. Pressing is hard. The weather is so mentally fatigued. All right, lads. Already on the way down, are you? How was your view from the top? <laughs> 
Liverpool might have peaked under Klopp, but at Paddy Power, if things aren't going your way, we'll give you your money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold acker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min on 1 to 5 on each leg, online exclusive, exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Dom. James. A lot of talk about the Euros in the last few days. Of course, they're due officially to start in Rome on June the 11th, I think with Italy-Turkey. Rumours rife in the last couple of days, though, that UEFA were planning to scrap the pan-continental format and stage the whole thing in one country, the UK, as it happens, presumably with our experience in kind of downsizing continental <laughs> projects. <laughs> I don't know. But the funny thing is, when I was looking at this today, I noticed two things. One, that this weekend's tweet originated with Being Sports's Tancredi Palmieri, which I, I, I love Tancredi dearly, but, um, to, but, but the other is that you wrote a piece about this about three weeks ago, kind of wargaming what, what would happen, how would it, would it be if, if UEFA just staged the whole thing in the UK. Can I ask for why did you do that? Had you already heard something? No, the, the idea was to, to spark a debate. It was at the, a time when uh, the vaccine in this country seemed to be being distributed a lot quicker than it was across continental Europe. Um, there was a lot of a lot of people were saying, is, is this not a crazy idea to be staging this tournament in 12 countries? You know, you know, Dublin in the west to Baku in the east, 3,250 miles in between. Is, is, there still a, is it still appropriate to be doing that? Um, so the idea was, that it's, I think it was originally an idea from, by, the, um, by Ed Malian um, at The Athletic, to say, write a piece. Let, let's debate it. Let's, let's imagine that... Um, UEFA came cup in hand to the FA, the Scottish FA and the Welsh FA. And uh, could you stage this this tournament for us at short notice? Um, so we, yeah, we just sat and, and, and chatted it through and, and came up with what we considered to be vaguely plausible distribution of, of games, of, of training grounds, of even hotels. Um, we applied some of the stipulations that UEFA would apply for a tournament in terms of stadium facilities and training ground facilities in terms of police policing as well you know obviously you can't have two two games kicking off at the same time in the same city um i think the, the northeast was a slightly blurred area in that because sunderland and newcastle potentially that was a group um so the last group games might have been kicking off at the same time there and it, it was purely just to get people talking about this possibility and it did in fairness, it took off. I mean, Tifo did a brilliant video as well, which really helped. Um, and uh, yeah, it sparked a, a debate. A lot of people very, very unimpressed that I had so many venues in London and, and so few in Scotland. And, and I can completely understand that. Uh, we had to take into account things like the Ellen Road pitch, things like 
the fact that that isn't an option this summer because they are doing 14 weeks work on the ground and, and the same applied potentially at Ibrox as well. So Rangers wasn't an, uh, wasn't going to be a, a, an option for them. And there were a number of other things dotted around the country and other people that maybe people weren't aware of, um, but, you know, that, that ruled out certain places. I mean, the most controversial ground that we did pick was probably Derby County, which is purely, purely to wind up Daniel's story. So, um, but I mean, Leicester City could easily have taken that role if, if their ground was was available uh, over the summer. And it, and it look, UEFA, you know, took a subscription out of the Athletic on the Monday morning, and now they appear to be uh, considering it. So, so great. Well, what do you? I mean, it, it obviously works, and. Wembley, for example, already had seven fixtures, yeah. both semi-finals and the final schedules would be there anyway. But what do you make then of, of the, the rumours in the last day or two? Do you think it is now becoming a realistic possibility? I think they have to have all options open for them because they, they, they're not making a decision on this until mid-April. The, the, the situation across Europe is different in virtually every country in terms of lockdown in terms of vaccinations in terms of new cases and new variants etc um i think i mean uefa have to have a contingency plan and given that france had the last euros and germany have got uh, 24 spain and portugal you could argue that maybe not so much in portugal but the facilities in spain i don't think are, are, are brilliant italy likewise maybe don't don't butt my head off but i, I think no, no, i don't absolutely. think i don't think the stadia are necessarily up to it necessarily and it is the infrastructure is here in this country it would be frustrating if this was england's england sorry the uk's chance to host a major tournament and we only had crowds of 30 40% at the games and this this was considered to be our chance to hold a, a major finals for you know passing it up for the next 30 years but but prag- pragmatically and, and practically speaking that they need a solution if it comes to that if it comes to that they need a solution where the infrastructure is there and it's it's ready to go and and, and vaccination rates in this country are very very good um compared to to mainland europe at the moment so again that that comes into the thinking and you really think they'll leave the decision as late as april Would i think that they have keep to yeah enough time yeah they, that's what they've said isn't it they, mm. they, yeah yeah, but we don't even know really. I mean, I know we've got this this roadmap in this country for coming out of lockdown, but the, the situation is can change at any moment, can't it? Sure. So I think they do have to leave it until that at that point, and then probably. Make and that a would still there. give them give the authorities, for example, if it was in this country, uh, time enough to get everything in place. Well, well it, it kind of depends what they come back because basically that that April date is for the nations who are hosts at the moment to come back and choose one of their three options isn't it which is either full hosting 30% hosting or no fans at all and it's whether the hosts feel which which position they're in so there's essentially a bizarre scenario where two or three cities say we don't want to host it anymore two say we want to do it with 30% fans some say we want to do full fans and UEFA kind of have to very quickly make a decision on that which I mean I agree with Dom it would be so much easier if proactively they'd said this is going to be damn hard to pull off why don't we just come up with a solution that and delay this until 2024 this idea but in their wisdom that they are delaying yeah it's a difficult one for UEFA as well, isn't it? Because this has been their baby. Okay, it was hatched originally by Michel Platini, but but it's they wanted this particular tournament to be different. 
and they didn't <laughs> envisage a global pandemic coming in and, and getting in the way. Um, I, I think even now it would be, it would look like quite a climb down um, from UEFA to to scrap the twelve nation idea. But everything about life is 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 about pragmatism at the moment. Everything, you know, daily life, society. So why shouldn't that apply to a football tournament? I think there was a, a sense within UEFA, wasn't there, that by moving it from last year and by allowing the Champions League to be there, and I think they thought that by making that compromise, that sort of, that would be enough and that somehow, okay, well, we've done that. So we've, we've you know, you, you think of the, the lots of people who've had to rearrange things, weddings, whatever, by a year. And I think thought, well, you know, a year's miles away, we'll be fine by then. And, and there's probably a sense that they thought that too, that they'd take that stand, they'd allow that to... Uh, to push it back by a year and by now the situation would be clearer but it, it just isn't and that's why still only what a few months out it it, it does look so up in the air but, but the reality is that I mean, we mentioned the champions league it's, it's a pertinent point i mean we there are english clubs that don't know where they're playing their second legs of their current ties mm. at the moment you know the, the likelihood is that liverpool won't be at anfield for the second leg of their game against leipzig i mean it's yeah it's that is what life is like at the moment. So if this is, they have to have all their options open. They have to, they have to explore all possibilities. And if there is a country, a nation, or in this case, three nations in our idea, although I I think that the, the suggestion from that was put out uh, was actually just England. It wasn't, it didn't include Scotland and, and Wales, which again, I don't know why it shouldn't include those, those countries either, to be honest. Um, but they just have to have a contingency plan there, and 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 I think that this country, if it could probably do it, it's probably one of the few that could. Okay, if you'd like to keep abreast of Dom's other blue sky thinking, <laughs> got a great plan for the Qatar World Cup, by the way. Oh, <laughs> then uh, why not sign yourselves up for a subscription to the Athletic uh, for unrivaled coverage on the. Uh, business end of the season and beyond all the articles all the podcasts ad free and you also get Q&As with writers like Charlie and Dom presumably also Charlie and Dom I don't know anyway it's only £4 a month head to theathletic or one word dot com slash totally Rah. after this bottom of the table looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Bottom of the table, so rich in drama, so many stories. <laughs> Perhaps none more entertaining than Brighton. Fresh from that smash and grab at the Amex last week against Crystal Palace. This weekend, Seagulls had the trip to West Brom. Surely this one would go better. No. They ended up beating 1-0 by Big Sam's baggies uh, with a very valid Brighton goal disallowed by referee Lee Mason. Daniel, you're not going to talk about this in your winners and losers. This is your chance. <laughs> I mean, your chance. Th- that one doesn't almost feel like it. It feels like it sits beyond the realms of refereeing decision because it was, it was like a what's happened next from the good years of question of sport. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a perfectly valid goal, but, you know, Lee Mason's kind of, I think he's almost forgotten he's blown his whistle to let play carry on. And then when he sees it taking place and realises people aren't ready, he's blown it again. And I guess at the point he blows it again, West Brom flares can say, well, we were put off by that, so you can't award the goal, which I guess is, why, again, why VAR ruled it out. But I, it's messy, isn't it? I mean, I think he he looks up, sees the goalkeeper isn't even nearly ready and thinks, oh, God, I've gone too early here and, and whistles again. I mean, the the thing that I think was so strange about it was then going to VAR. Mm. Like, it was, it was like, surely you know better than anyone kind of <laughs> what you've done. I don't like the VAR was to see the the, set, the moment at which the second whistle went. Right. It, it, it which I don't know if you can do odd. that. I don't know if there's red lines you can draw on a screen to indicate the second whistle. It would have been great to see sort of cartoon musical notes coming out of (laughs) Lee Mason's whistle would have been really good. But, oh dear, and the whole thing took, what was it, three minutes or something, which is not the longest delay we've had, but really this machine for detecting rogue armpits, utterly useless for correcting this this massive wrong, which could well cost cost Brighton dearly uh, coming into the the season. We should say that that Brighton are, uh, yes, they were unfairly punished here, but they Mm. are creating so many problems for themselves with this ludicrously bad finishing. I mean, in fairness, they only had 15 shots this time, but that did include the two penalties, obviously. And right. I was looking at it. They, they In the last three games alone, they've had 45 shots from inside the area and scored once. West Brom have only had 118 all season. And this, I mean, What's a shot? The amount of. <laughs> I mean, they're they're in these in these two games in which they've scored once. Their combined xG was seven point seven. So with average finishing, they'd be expected to score basically eight goals, and they've scored one. I mean, it is missing two penalties as well. It is. I mean, we talked about we talked about Brighton a few times, haven't we? And this was, you know, them saying like, "You ain't seen nothing yet. Like, if you think we can waste chances, <laughs> wait until you see yeah. this." <laughs> It's very, it's very happy days jumping the shark. At some point, they're going to do something so silly that the next game they'll just win three 0 regulation, probably against Newcastle. I suspect they'll just, it will click at some point. It has mm. to, and it, it's odd because normally managers rightly get, you know, pretty stinging criticism when their teams fall into relegation trouble. But it's kind of hard to know how to judge Potter because. Mm. The team are set up pretty well and they're quite resilient and they, they, they create chances and 
but if they go down, then I don't know what else he could have done. Or um, yeah, it's it's an odd one. Does it not? Does it at some point does it not become a a recruit? Not this isn't a criticism to be levelled at Graham Potter. I don't think. I think I think it's probably to be levelled at, at Dan Ashworth, or, or or maybe maybe it's it's purely the reality that. For most Premier League clubs, not the elite elite, but for most Premier League clubs, if you want to bring in a, a goal scorer that's going to get you 15 to 20 goals a season, you probably have to spend 50 to 60 million pounds. And is a club outside that elite able to do that on one player? Well, not, not unless you've got a very good relationship with a Portuguese agent. Um, it's, it's, it's just not feasible. So if they stay up, and I think they probably will end up just about staying up, what do they do in the summer? Do they do they sell a Ben White or an Eve Basuma and use that money to to buy one finisher, just any a, a finisher? It could be like Mishi Batshuayi would probably do a brilliant job for them, you know. <laughs> but it's it's just a finisher. Just get somebody in who knows where the goal is and 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 hits a shot on target, and it's got a bit of ruthlessness to them, um, and it'd probably be transformative. They'll, they'll, they'll then look like the top half table team that their statistics suggest that they should be. I mean, I have to say, like I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I really like him as a player, so I don't want to be unkind, but you do have limited sympathy for a team that, you know, is good uh, in build-up and has good approach play but can't really score, and then they sign Danny Welbeck. I mean, just just talking about recruitment, I, I don't think that can come as an enormous surprise that you're kind of missing chances. Brighton play nine of the top 12, which is a pretty Oof. broad concept, but anyway, nine of that group in their last 12 games. So touch and go isn't it Fulham are three points away after their nil-nil draw with Crystal Palace Dom um, Palace I put it to you are, are the Premier League's currently most entertaining team as long as you don't actually have to watch them just because what they're up to is fascinating <laughs> they didn't manage a, a single shot on target in this one which means to kind of parallel or mirror Brighton stats They've picked up four points from their last two Premier League games despite attempting six shots, their opponents had 41, and having nine touches in the opposition's box and their opponents had 70. How much are you enjoying, Palace, Tom? Well, I haven't updated this since the Liverpool result, so it might have changed, but but as far as I'm aware, they're only the top five and Arsenal have got more points than Palace in this calendar year. So... In that respect, I'll take it. But look, it's I'm quite um, again. The pragmatism thing comes into this. I, I'll put up with this because I I can see a bigger picture. I can see the issues that Palace are are coping with. There was a very good table printed out, and I think it was in the Times this morning, which indicated the number of games missed by players through injury at each of the twenty. Premier League clubs and Palace I think topped that list at 176 Fulham were bottoming that list at 46 those numbers will have gone up a bit on the back of today's game at both ends but Palace have got five first team players who would have been in their first choice team out injured at the moment including all of their pace in Zaha and Schlupp there's no pace in that team it's a team that's trying to play a counter-attacking football with no pace so it's hardly a surprise that they can never break anybody down or even get even vaguely close to the opposition box um it's it's but I but I think that actually as as grim as it is to watch it does showcase the qualities of Gary Cahill in terms of last ditch defending Vicente Greiter 
was excellent again today. Um, I think that whole bat line are very rugged, and I, I can admire that. I can admire that for because of the situation that Palace find themselves in. However, that said, this isn't a Palace story. Fulham missed a massive opportunity to to go level out of the out of the bottom three today, and as well as they played, and as and that we can talk about improvements uh, at Fulham, and they have made fantastic progress um, uh, since the, the opening twelve games. Which I think they lost eight of them. That that was it was there for them today in the same way that it was there for Brighton last week, and they didn't take it. They got into some absolutely staggeringly brilliant positions that Palace can only dream of. I mean, they were actually in the opponent's <laughs> box for a start, and they couldn't put the ball away. And and that will be why Fulham and Brighton and Newcastle never really clambered clear of trouble, and and, and the next six weeks are going to be completely anxious and and uh, and difficult to endure it's it, that was a massive missed opportunity for Fulham today they should they should have won it comfortably and they didn't fair enough palace says dom have the most points in the top flight at this stage since 1991 is that true dom yes remarkable remarkable okay newcastle also drew with wolves this game was uh, late on saturday 1-1, which is the exact same scoreline they've had in the last five meetings between these two teams. Uh, not a good evening, this, for Newcastle, who had taken the lead in this game, but then lost yet more players. Almiron went out. Sam Maxima has also picked up, I think, a hamstring injury. Of course, uh, Callum Wilson's already out the picture. Uh, two wins in 17 now. Not looking yeah. good. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's it's this is the longest running or the longest punchline in Premier League history that Steve Bruce is going to sort of talk up the positives and and I get why that happens because you know the last thing you want to do is say everything looks forlorn but everything's slightly chipping away from them and they'll finally fall into the relegation zone with about five minutes left of the the last game against Fulham and um, yeah the, the players is is huge because you take out Wilson. Uh, Sam Maximan and Almiron from that team and their top scorer since the beginning of last season is John Joe Shelby with seven um, and I mean that he's not a regular goal scorer I was amused to read in it, that interview with him in which he said I'd hate to play for Leeds because you have to do a lot of running around and pointless <laughs> running and I thought it doesn't strike me as a player that's at one necessarily with his game at the moment and yeah I, I they, they, they've got good fixtures, Newcastle. They really have. But most of them are away from home and only West Brom and Sheffield United have been in worse away from home this season. So uh, they, that can quite quickly go, you know, Bruce has talked up this, you know, we can beat the teams around us, but that can quite quickly go the other way if you don't turn up in those games. And, and as you say, they're going to have to do it without probably their three best attacking players. Mm. Just when they started playing football on the front foot, everyone gets injured. Could be a huge point that for them, though, you know, could be. I mean, the thing is, of those teams, I mean, Fulham, aside from the finishing, look like a much more coherent side out of the two, out of them and Newcastle, and they have a bit of momentum. And with those injuries, it, you do you do worry for them a little bit. And like Daniel said a couple of weeks ago, that, that they play... Um, on the last day of the season, I mean, that could, that could be basically a relegation playoff. And a relegation playoff that, that might have supporters. 
attending, mm. which would be... Um, I mean, I suspect Newcastle... Newcastle have potentially got a game on the Monday night, so they might take it if they're allowed fans at their last home game. But if I'd be Newcastle and fans are only allowed into one game and it's a relegation playoff away at, at Fulham, True. I'd be furious that... Although, I mean, Fulham isn't necessarily the most yeah. intimidating atmosphere, we should oh, say. Clappers, I was going to say, right? hardly, oh, hardly the Coliseum at the, the Craven Cottage. <laughs> and, and also, isn't one half of it currently off-limits because they're rebuilding it? Yeah. So, uh, Other than that, but yes, mm. I'd still be annoyed if I was Newcastle. No, no, maybe. for sure, for sure. West Brom—that uh, was their first home win under Sam Allardyce, by the way. Uh, their victory over Brighton, and he'd said before the game they had to win two of the next three to stay alive. Uh, they've got home matches against Everton and Newcastle coming up, and uh, they're what nine points off safety. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, yeah. you've seen crazier things happen with twelve games to go. Would take something absolutely remarkable, though, wouldn't it? I mean, really, really remarkable. And, and I mean, they're not going to be able to. <laughs> says, says a Crystal Palace fan who's shot, whose side has had a shot in the last two games. <laughs> they're not going to keep fluking it, are they? I mean, they can't. They can't get away with it as they did against Brighton on, at the weekend. Um, it just seems to. Be, it sort of feels as if they're doing this from too far back with with too few games to go. Um, that's sort of nagging doubt. But look, if they win, if they beat Everton and they beat. And they beat Newcastle in the next two games, then mm. they will have an awful lot of belief then, because they could be three points behind Newcastle potentially at that point. I mean, Bur- Burnley are only a couple of head- points ahead of uh, Brighton and Newcastle as well. May- maybe they could be sucked in. Yeah, Saints plummeting uh, as well. All right, well, loads more action to come through the week. In a second or two, we will celebrate a very special anniversary on this, the first of March. But before that, let's get some odds on the action that's upcoming from Lee Price of Paddy Power. Hello, listener. The season's basically over, so I've done the obvious thing, and I've chosen my player of the year. Premature, maybe, but sometimes you've got to get in there first to have any kind of relevance. Just look at the Carabao. I was going to shoehorn my nominations into a lineup, but that's too contrived even for me. So I'll just do a top five and mention some odds quietly as we go. Apologies in advance. We'll start with Daniel Podence at Wolves. Congratulations to the little man with a big impact on my heart. Seeing him alongside Adama Traore is particularly fun and let's face it, there's not a whole load of that going on at Wolves at the minute. As if to illustrate that fact, they're 16-1 to 1 to beat Man City on Tuesday night. Ouch. Secondly, we've got Arthur Masaraka at West Ham. Or at least, I think he's still at West Ham. All I know is, every time I see him play, I know something magic is about to happen at either end of the pitch. Third on my list is Leandro Trozard at Brighton. Another little lad. If I wasn't so tall, people would smell a conspiracy. But he's adorable. He has a mean streak and a wicked delivery. It's just a shame that Brighton aren't blessed with players to finish off his passes. They are a lengthy 17-2 to go down though. So they should be fine. West Brom play Everton on Thursday night. And my God, I hope they win. For one man and one man only. Mbai Diang. The first time I set eyes on him... He struck fear into an opposition defence like a fox in a hen house. And fox is right, if you've seen his loving remix of the Blue Rinse. His baggies are 16-5 to to beat Everton. But top of the pops, and the winner, perhaps for the rest of the time of this award, is Alan Maximan. Obviously. You knew it, didn't you? I've got no idea he'll feature again this season, but he'll always feature in my heart. Alan, get well soon. We all love you. And congratulations. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop.
Totally Football League shows out on Monday, everybody. Uh, featuring, uh, I imagine that Notts County girl. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. And also the Bournemouth Watford brawl. Mr. Wilshire getting himself sent off for a second yellow, should be said. I mean, he's always had that. Wilshire's one of those players that when he's got that sort of nasty element in the game and slightly spikiness, it probably means he's feeling all right. It probably means things are going well. I think he always, always at his best at Arsenal when he had that kind of spikiness in him, I think. So, yeah. And Bournemouth won under Woodgate, which is a good thing for them. Absolutely. Much more on that story and others in the Totally Football League show, which, as I say, is probably out right now. On Tuesday, do tune into the Offside Rule WSL edition. Uh, or alternatively, if you prefer, the Totally Scottish Football Show. Or, here's another option for you, the Totally Football Show European edition. Discussing Roma Milan and loads of other things, as well as the latest from Turkey. Uh, there's a new Golazzo out as well, as we speak... That's all about Fabrizio Ravanelli. I say new, it's been out since Friday, but given that they come out kind of, you know, almost on a kind of geological kind of time scale, <laughs> um, that's this Eon's Golazzo. So, uh, oh, today's the 1st of March, which means on this day, it's exactly seven years since the 1st of March 2014, when Hull City faced Newcastle at the KC Stadium. And Newcastle manager Alan Pardew headbutted Hull midfielder David Myler. And Myler and Alan Pardew just squaring up to each other, and Pardew, oh dear, dear, dear. He looked there as though he put his forehead into the face of David Myler. Pardew was fined £100,000 by his club and a further 60000 from the FA. And they also banned him for seven matches. Is Alan Pardew the most colourful figure? If you were going to do a biopic of a Premier League... <laughs> figure uh, apart from the fact that you would struggle to get everything into one film you could do a kind of goal trilogy probably parts yeah, one the, parts two parts three it's the lawyer's budget that's the issue i think that's, <laughs> that's where the discussions really need to be had but what an extraordinary i mean former premier league manager of the year lma manager of the year took newcastle to fifth into europe even in the first few months of 2014 episode there'd also be the Pellegrini calling him an old uh, C word I mean Codger. he was really yeah exactly he was really going for it at the start of that year you had uh, more recently battling relegation in Holland with Den Haag he's currently technical director at CSK Sofia what's your favourite <laughs> pod story Dom I bet you've got some um, yeah um, uh, I no, I, I get on very well with Alan Pardew. Um, I saw him at the end of I'm trying to think. It was I, I went I went to Holland and did his first home game uh, for Den Haag, and uh, I think they won two 0 But I think the limitations of the team that he'd inherited were very very obvious, um, and they stayed up brilliantly that season because the Dutch league got cancelled. Mm. Um, the I saw him at the end of lockdown. We we met up for a. Once we, we were allowed to do this, we met up for a coffee and an interview on a park bench in Bletchingley um, and had a, had, a, had a cup of coffee there. And I noticed that he didn't wear socks, which surprised okay. me. Did he eye your coffee enviously or not? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, he was, he was brilliant company, really good and full of good okay. stories. And he was talking about Newcastle at the time and indeed about that brilliant season where they did, they did finish fifth. 
and won spectacularly at, at Chelsea with that Cisse goal, which was stunning. Probably the best goal I've ever seen. I'll have one of them. Um, uh, and yeah, he was thoroughly good company. I, I, I suspect... I suspect he's angling for a job in this country again now. I think he, there was some suggestions that he might quite fancy the AFC Wimbledon job when it was available. No, he's a man who some of his kind of more colourful exploits have have had a bearing on the way he's perceived, but he's had some huge successes. West Ham to the cup final, beaten only by that Stephen Gerrard miracle Liverpool comeback, Palace twice as a player and a manager, and doing a dance on the touchline in the FA Cup final. He's um, he's one of those managers, though, that I think, uh, firstly, a certain type of player, but also, when you're on a good run, I, I suspect he makes it very easy, uh, and I suspect he doesn't have an awful lot to do in terms of motivation when he gets a side winning, because he does have this kind of strength of personality that makes it work and and so for, for whatever reason when it goes south it tends to you know he tends not to be able to redress that which uh i mean i don't know if that's a, a kind of tactical thing or just a personality thing but I, I suspect when he looks back whatever happens from now on he would take the highs and the lows because yeah that newcastle season was absolutely astonishing and you know not many british managers get to cup finals and he's done it so yeah, for a man, as you say, who for for various reasons is kind of slightly teased, shall we say. Um, Not bad for a, a glazier. Not a, a glazier by trade, wasn't he? I think he, he, he was telling was me he? about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to, uh, I think he was he was telling me about Merseyside. I was talking to him about Liverpool and he, he, he mentioned going up to, I think, Birkenhead, to a job at Birkenhead and, and a glazing job up, up there and experiencing... Anfield for the first time, I think, as a as a supporter, just to, just to, to experience the, the noise at at Anfield, and then the, the next time he was up there, it was a <laughs> he was in the Palace midfield. He actually won a penalty um, at Anfield, um, which Jeff Thomas missed, and we lost nine nil. So, Dom, sorry, the timescale on this: he was what a trainee at Palace or something? No, no, no. He was he was a non league footballer. He he played. Um, Corinthian casuals, and and uh, I think Palace signed from Yeovil Town for five grand or something daft um, right. under Steve Koppel in the 80s but he his he was very much part time he he was one of the he was recognized as one of the best non-league players out there so one of the best part-time players and uh, uh Steve Koppel went in and at, at a period where Palace were buying people like Ian Wright and, and Alan Pardew and and right. Thomas and Pemberton etc and, and uh, he did a wonderful job for them and um with limited ability but you knew what you were getting from Alan Pardew the same mm. with his management, I suspect. Yeah. What well, though do you? Because there are others, the very, very great highs and you know talk of the England job and that kind of thing, back around that period of, of the Newcastle success, and then now it seems possibly we're only at the, the second act of this this three act trilogy, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you knew what you got in the sense he was on that sort of merry-go-round of clubs, wasn't he, for a while? Um, those teams that seem to always. Have- Employ the same sort of of uh, of manager, but I, I do have to say I agree with Dom. I mean, any dealings I've had with him, he's been nothing but um, very friendly and and very helpful. And that Newcastle team was so exciting that they, you know, they they very nearly did get Champions League with Cisse and Barr and and all those guys. And and yeah, I think maybe some people felt he um, luxuriated in it a bit too much. But maybe that's a bit of an English thing as well that we don't like our you know people to be too kind of up themselves and self-assured, which he he certainly is. His problem has always been that 
just at the point he started believing his own hype, which he was well within his rights to do so. The unfortunate timing is that that seems to have slightly coincided with things falling off a cliff and therefore he gets that gets labelled as the reason why it happens, which I think Mm. is probably unfair. Mm. But he shouldn't have done the dance. And he shouldn't have done the other things. But that's well, fine, yeah. Yes. Although that the 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 headbutt, and I'm waving my fingers in the air here. It, when you when you look back on it, he gets shoved quite unnecessarily by Mailer, and he he goes over as Mailer tries to make off with the ball. To I think to seek explanation as much as anything, and he does incline his head as if to say, <laughs> "Not with me, Sonny," or whatever. But it's not. He doesn't. You know, Joey. Same Barton as the referee last week, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think he just gets excited, like with the mm. dance. He just he just gets carried away, doesn't he? And yeah, but he absolutely. But I I think it's in the context of his story. I just I just think that he, I think he, he probably looks at the career that he's had in football and still pinches himself that he's he's managed these clubs and and had that playing career that, that took him to an FA Cup final and third place in the top flight, and and at that point, bear in mind when he did that dance um mm. he was about to lead he was like i don't know how many minutes was i don't want to think about how many minutes it was 11 minutes or something daft from from taking palace to their first ever major trophy i mean first ever trophy of any real significance because people apparently don't recognize the zenith data systems cup and it kills me that that's the case but there you go preach um, preach dom for that <laughs> <laughs> But that, that season as well, Dom, that people forget that 15-16, the one where Leicester won the league, Palace were doing really well yeah. up until about Christmas. And there was genuine talk of, like, could could they push for yeah. the top four, you know? And then, obviously, Leicester did what they did, and Palace completely fell off a cliff in the Palace league were, second Palace half of the season. fifth, I think, on, on November the... Sorry, December the 20th, they, they won the last minute at Stoke, and I think they were level with the Champions League places that day, mm. and they won two more games all season in the league. <laughs> Um, and that's why, I mean, that, that is, you mentioned about Roy Hodgson's 33 points from 26 games. This is what that Pardew team had at this point. Um, but Roy Hodgson can limp on from now, one more win and you'll have more points pretty much. And Palace only got 42 points that season, having having been where they were. So it's, But they were distracted and, and there was a distraction at the time with the FA Cup because it because it it was all the way to Wembley. So. Mm. Alan Pardew pinches himself and other people's dinners. That's it for this edition of the Totally Football Show. But there's loads of other related podcast material out there, so do have a go on those. And we'll be back on Thursday uh, reviewing the midweek action. For now, many thanks to Dom and Daniel and Charlie for being with us. And uh, producer Charlie for putting it together overnight. Have yourself a super time, listener, from all of us here. Until we next speak, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.